Today on Against the Grain. North Americans are sick, stressed, and alienated, as state of affairs accentuated in recent years by COVID. The Hungarian-Canadian physician Gabor Mate argues that capitalism engenders illness, while the medical system blindly ignores the lives of its patients. Mate discusses individual and collective change while reflecting on human nature, alienation and right-wing politics, and the work of Karl Marx. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. Gabor Mate is unusually well-positioned to reflect on alienation and trauma across very different societies. He was born in Budapest during the Holocaust and then grew up in Soviet-dominated Hungary. His family moved to Canada after the Hungarian Revolution of 1956, and he later became an opponent of the Vietnam War and a trenchant critic of capitalist medicine. I had the opportunity to talk with Gabor Mate for almost an hour about his understanding of illness and health under capitalism and of life after capitalism. I began by asking him why capitalism in its intensified current form underlies what looks like an epidemic of chronic illness affecting people in North America and beyond. This was his answer. And as globalization spreads, so are the diseases engendered by corporate capitalism and capitalism in general. Well, that question to be answered needs to be put into context. And the context is the scientific one, which science is utterly ignored by my own profession, the medical profession. And the science is simply this, it's all one. Human beings are not isolated biological entities. They are what has been called biopsychosocial in nature, which means that our biology is related to our emotions and our psychology. And in turn, that psychology and emotions are shaped by the environment in which we're <clears throat> developing from conception onwards. And so that the context is the mother's womb, but the family and the relationship between mother and father, that involves also the multi-generational family history. And all of that takes place in a certain culture. So ultimately, it's the culture that is the broadest context for the development of health and illness. And rather than being discrete individual creatures, we're all very much connected. And so what happens on the social and cultural levels inevitably has an impact on our physiology. That's the straight science of it. It's very straightforward. The proofs have been around for a long time, published in, sign in significant medical and scientific journals, and yet the average physician doesn't even hear about it in their education. So ultimately, since capitalism is the context that sets our economic, social, and cultural, and political lives, that's why I'm saying that the sources of increasing illness have to do with the system in which we live. Do you think that doctors don't study the social and medical school because the chances of them being able to address these larger social questions are constrained? Well, that's true, but that's not the only reason. Um, in the 19th century, there was a very famous German physician called Rudolf Virchow, and I, I mentioned his story in my book. 
and which are still revered in modern medicine as one of the founders of, of modern uh, pathology. But when he was a young doctor, there was an epidemic of typhus, I think, might have been cholera, but I think it was typhus, in Upper Silesia, which is a Polish part of what was then Germany. And he went there, and he investigated what was responsible for this epidemic, speaking of epidemics. And he came back, and his recommendations were that better sanitation, better social conditions, the teaching of Polish in schools, the separation of church and state, and all around more democracy. And people were outraged. They said, what's this got to do with medicine? And he said, well, politics is just a continuation of medicine. And if we don't understand these connections, we don't understand human beings. That basically was his message. I'm paraphrasing him. So this knowledge is not new. The proof for it is not new. But, but of course, if doctors learned this stuff, then they'd have to challenge the status quo. Now, they, go to, they, they learn in institutions that reflect the status quo ideology. They're not going to learn about this stuff, number one. Number two, it's much easier, especially under current medical and medical economic conditions. If somebody comes to me with de depression, for example, or an autoimmune disease, for me to prescribe an antidepressant or a medication for their autoimmune condition takes five minutes. For me to sit down and say, what in your life has got you depressing, pushing down your emotions? What has happened in your life that your immune system is attacking you instead of defending you? Now that takes time and it takes insight. So sheer economics speaks against it. And finally, um, by and large, doctors are very driven people like I was, you know, and I was a workaholic physician. Why? Because that reflected my own trauma. Medical school itself is often very highly, tra highly traumatizing and stressful, so we don't learn to have insight into ourselves. As a result, how do we have insight into our clients? So it's a combination of many factors, but ultimately it reflects the need of the system that treats people like physical entities without a soul, without a psyche. The COVID pandemic certainly brought to the fore so many of the social divisions that we, we all live with, and uh, those who are most affected often were those who struggle the most in our society. Do you think that the experience of the pandemic may have brought the social in in any meaningful way, or do you think that medicine will trundle along as before? Well. The first question is, why do we even need COVID to tell us the obvious? So, for example, in Canada, where I live, indigenous women have six times the rate of rheumatoid arthritis than non-indigenous, say, males. Now, this is in a population that never used to have rheumatoid arthritis. So clearly it's related to certain stresses, including poverty, racism, and multi-generations of abuse and colonialism. Uh, we've known this for a long time. In the United States, women um, of color or uh, non-Caucasian women have higher rates of autoimmune disease than Caucasian women. We've known this for decades. Um, women in general have 70 or 80% of autoimmune diseases. We've known this for decades. These have everything to do with social conditions and cultural programming which affects our biology. Now, 
COVID simply revealed what was already obvious, but we didn't look at it. So I don't have a whole lot of hope, given that we've been ignoring the evidence for so many decades now, that even the COVID nightmare will wake us up because the system needs us to stay asleep. It needs the medical profession to stay asleep. And um, I, I'm not too, too optimistic. Uh, it's, it's a bit like the George Floyd murder. Didn't it wake us up for a while about racism and its impact and its um, pervasiveness in the law enforcement apparatus? But has anything really changed? And so th there's a momentary awakening, uh, uh, reckoning. Some people will retain this awareness, but I'm not, I'm not optimistic that under the present circumstances we will have acquired and absorbed the lessons of COVID. I wonder if you could talk a bit more about the increase of autoimmune diseases, which you write about in your book, and how that is linked and illustrative of the effects of the social on the body. Okay. It has to do with, again, the science of mind-body unity. This is not esoteric. It's not New Age, uh, airy-fairy um, assertions. It's pure science. So the role of emotions in general is to allow in what is healthy and nurturing and sustaining and welcome and keep up what isn't. That's fundamentally the role of emotions. So it's a boundary that allows in what is good and keeps out what is toxic. What is the role of the immune system? Trick question. If you think about it for a moment, you realize the immune system role is exactly the same. Keep out what is unhealthy and to allow in what's nourishing. Now, physiologically speaking, the emotional system in the body is part and parcel of the same apparatus that the immune system is. They're not connected, they're one. The one is affected by the other. And this larger system, of course, also includes the nervous system and the hormonal apparatus and what could go on. And this has been studied, you know, thousands of times. Now, to complete the circle here, the people that develop autoimmune disease, and I've studied this, I've written about it in the previous book called When the Body Says No, basically people that don't know how to say no, people that take on the emotional needs of others ahead of their own, people that don't repress their healthy anger, people that um, are afraid of disappointing others, um, people who think that other people's emotions are their responsibility. This is a typical profile of people with autoimmune disease. I've never met a single exception. And it's not, nor is this my opinion only, it's also been studied. And unfortunately, physicians just don't get it, despite all the research linking rheumatoid arthritis and childhood trauma. And that's why the rate of rheumatoid arthritis in Canada is six times higher for indigenous women, because they happen to be the most oppressed segment of our population. Well, tell us more generally how the social environment that we find ourselves in and the kind of conditioning that we're raised up through affects our health prospects. You mentioned personality traits, but of course that seems like sort of slippery slope because it's 
easy to then suggest that people are responsible for the outcomes of their health. And I wonder if you could talk about how are personality traits developed and how should we not see this as our own sort of individual cross to bear? Well, you know what? So I'm going to reframe this a bit, if that's all right. People are responsible. I'd rather, would you rather not be? If you came to me, if I was your physician, and you came to me with inflammation of your joints, which would you rather hear? That um, this is just a misfortune, an unaccountable act of hostile fate. You've got this condition that's going to last the rest of your life. We can't cure it. We don't even know what causes it. All we can do is give you pills to control it, if you're lucky. And basically, you can look forward to a life of deterioration. Would you rather hear that, which is the modern medical story? Or would you rather hear that, you know, you're not to blame for this, but there's certain aspects of how you live your life, how you were programmed by your childhood when you had no control over it. So there's no blame here whatsoever. But that during childhood, you develop certain traits that keep evoking stress for you. And if you become aware of those traits, and if you turn it around, you can actually respond to this disease. You'll be response-able. You're not being blamed, but you can sure take responsibility if you choose to. Now, which story would you rather hear? Well, it brings to mind the case of the writer and feminist Barbara Ehrenreich, who died not too long ago, who was diagnosed with breast cancer and wrote a whole sort of denunciation of the notion that if people are not positive enough, they bring on their cancer. How would you respond to that sort of critique? Well, I read her book in which she talked about this, and uh, she was scathing about positive psychology, and I agree with her. I'm not talking about people being positive, but I also read in Barbara Enright's book the trauma that she wasn't aware of, that she was carrying. Now, it was a number of years ago that I read the book. I even contacted her to interview her for The Myth of Normal, but I never heard back. Um, and um, I, look, I'm trained to see trauma. I saw it in her book. I don't think she was aware of it. So while she was cr totally right in her critique of positive psychology, if you only had positive thinking, you'd be all right. It's nonsense. She's right. It's total nonsense. But that doesn't mean that there aren't personality traits that, like for example, if you don't know how to say, if you don't know how to be angry, you're inviting people to step on you all the time. Now that creates stress. Stress undermines the immune system. Now, you asked earlier about how do these traits develop. It's not the person's fault. It's not the person's fault. There's no blame here. Children have two basic needs, and I talk about this in one of the chapters in the myth of normal well children have several needs but among their needs is number one and the primary one is a strong attachment relationship with the nurturing adults because the human infant is the most helpless the least mature and the most dependent for the longest period of time of any mammal so we have to have an attachment relationship in which somebody takes care of us it's not negotiable all mammals do even birds do so that's certainly a need that's not negotiable. But we have other needs. One of those needs is what I call authenticity. 
And authenticity is comes from the word auto for the self. So basically, it means being in touch with ourselves. So that when I insult you, you're in touch with your anger. It's that simple. And that's an evolutionary dictated need as well. It's not sort of a, again, sort of a new age slogan. It's essential because we evolved out there in nature. Now, how long does any creature in nature survive if they're not in touch with their gut feelings? It's a death sentence. So we have a need for authenticity and attachment. Okay, so you're a child, you're a three-year-old, and you get angry about something. But your parents have read one of these behavioral books by any number of really ignorant parenting experts, of which this society is full of, who tell you that an angry child should be made to sit by themselves. In other words, angry child should get the messages, if you're going to be angry, you're not going to be acceptable to us. So now you have a choice to make. Not on a conscious level, your organism has a choice to make. I can choose attachment, where I'll be looked after, or I can choose authenticity, when I'll be banished. Which one is the kid going to choose every time? They're not going to choose, they're going to choose the attachment. But it's not a conscious choice, it's an unconscious one. And it's wired into your nervous system. And if you get that message deeply enough, then for the rest of your life, you'll be concerned with pleasing others so that they will accept you. Suppressing your own anger, suppressing your own emotions, suppressing your authentic self. Now that leads to disease. Physician and writer Gabor Mate is my guest. We're talking about the myth of normal trauma, illness, and healing in a toxic culture. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. You were talking about childhood and the, the centrality of childhood in terms of shaping who we are and how we become uh, mentally and physically. And I wondered if you could talk back up even a little further and talk about pregnancy and childbirth and the role and importance of the stress of parents on the health outcomes of their children. Sure. So the Stanford-based neuroscientist and writer Robert Sapolsky said once that we are affected by the environment as soon as we have an environment. And that happens as soon as we're implanted in the womb. When I was looking after pregnant women in my practice, naturally I would ask them about their diet and exercise level, um, you know, check their blood pressure, weight, and all this. But I was never trained to ask them about their emotional states or about their stresses. Medical school doesn't breathe a word about that. And yet now we know, in fact we've known for decades, that the emotional states of the mother, the stresses of the mother, actually have a physiological impact on the child. We can study the heart rate patterns, for example, of a fetus inside the womb and see how it responds to the mother's stresses. And the mother's stress hormones travel through the placenta to the baby, and that has an impact on the child's brain development. So we know from multiple studies, not only that, the mother's stresses can even affect the chromosomal aging of the child, so that we can study these, decade, study these effects decades later and see the, see the impact of, of intrauterine stress. So that means that women are highly stressed during pregnancy, whether because of um, their own unresolved trauma, problems in their 
spousal relationship, cultural, economic, racial um, inequalities, injustices, that can have an impact on the developing infant, and that infant is at more risk for behavior problems, learning problems, mental health issues. It's not controversial, the science is very clear, and yet I doubt very much that most people who have ever been pregnant listening to your program when they went to their doctors, they were asked about their emotional states during pregnancy. Nor our husbands. I mean, I talk about my own case. When my wife was pregnant, I was a workaholic doctor, very much caught up in my own trauma, drama, if I can put it that way. I'm not putting myself down, I'm just saying that was the situation. That affected my wife's emotional states. And nobody talked to us about that. So that's just how it is. The birth process itself was designed by nature in certain ways, not just to get the baby out of the womb, but also to help the mother in bond with the infant and vice versa. Sometimes modern obstetrical intervention is miraculous and essential and life-saving, no question about it. But we've become so mechanized, so medicalized, so denatured that the birth process for a lot of women these days imposes um, aspects of trauma and interferes with the healthy bonding of their infants. And that has long-term consequences. Again, in the modern world, it's, it's, we have amazing technology and amazing science, which can be used to enhance and to protect, to save life. But when overdone, when it takes over, rather than becomes the servant, it becomes the master, it really hurts people. And that's what I see happening in my profession now. Not, nor am I the only one, by the way. You write that medicine tends to see disease often in sort of martial terms as an invading army that needs to be expelled from the body, but not as how you think disease should be understood more as a long-term process. Can you explain those two and, and why the latter makes sense to you? Sure. Our language is very revealing of our mind states. And part of the meaning of the title, The Myth of Normal, is that a lot of things that we take for granted, the way we speak about them, is just being normal. They're neither natural nor healthy. And they happen to be the norm in their society. So it's normal in our society to talk about people having diseases. So I have multiple sclerosis, or I have ADHD, which, by the way, I have been diagnosed with. Um, or um, I have cancer or I have bipolar disease, okay? Well, that language implies something. It implies that there's this thing called a disease, such as bipolar disease, such as multiple sclerosis, such as ADHD. These are entities in their own right with a certain life history trajectory of their own that's got nothing to do with me. I have it and now it's gonna do, its, do what it's gonna do. As I'm speaking to you, we're not seeing each other, but I can assert that I have this cup in my hand right now with a bit of water in it. I have that cup. It's a separate entity from me. I can put it down, pick it up, drink from it, do what I want with it. That doesn't affect my internal processes and it doesn't ref neither affects them nor reflects them. It's a separate entity. To say that I have say ADHD, which is the diagnosis that I've had, um, is to say that there's this entity called ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactive Disorder. 
But what if these diseases are not entities with their own independent characteristics, like the characteristics of this cup, that it's white, that it's made out of ceramic? It's got nothing to do with me. But what if disease was not this thing that you have? It's a process. It's a process that reflects your whole life. It's a process that reflects your parents' situation in a certain culture, in a certain class, at a certain time in history, as affected by the multi-generational history of your family. And that process continues through you in how you're programmed to relate to yourself as a human being. Whether you're in touch with your gut feelings and you have the authenticity, the freedom to be authentic, or that you have to keep repressing yourself all the time. And what if that process then manifests itself at some point in symptoms which are then, then diagnosed as an illness? But what if by changing your relationship to yourself and to your environment, you could change that process? Not that disease is no longer a thing, it's a process that you have active agency in response to which. So it's a, a different way of languaging it, but it implies a different way of looking at it. And I'm suggesting that most illnesses, not all illness, but most chronic illnesses in this culture, whether of mind or body, are processes that reflect our lives in a particular culture. And we can have a, an impact on that process, both on a social and on the individual level. Now, a friend of mine, part Lakota um, physician and psychiatrist, Louis Melmadrona, who's written a book called Coyote Medicine about indigenous ways of understanding health, and he's written another book called on narrative medicine. He, he told me that in his tradition, Lakota tradition, when somebody gets sick, basically the community says, thank you, your illness reflects something about all of us. So your healing is our healing. It's not that you've got this thing, there's this process going on that reflects something about all of us. That's a totally different way of looking at the same phenomenon. And to me it's a much more hopeful and not to mention much more scientific way. Well, let's talk about how it might look to move from the individual, which is the center of examination for medicine, to the social. In our society, there's a great deal of emphasis and a lot of money to be made as well by a focus on health and wellness and well-being, and even trauma. How would you suggest we move beyond that sort of framing to look at the social, um, not just in terms of an understanding, but a way to then act on it. I mean, when you're talking about agency, how do we keep that agency from just being simply the actions of individuals? Well, going back to Virchow, the 19th century German physician whom I quoted earlier, um, Medicine is not just an individual thing, it's a social um, phenomenon, and health is a social phenomenon. And uh, again, I could list off reams of statistics showing, for example, how race or racialism, not race by the way, racism affects health in the United States or in Canada. So that uh, the fact that black men have a much higher rate of high blood pressure, whereas the genetic relatives in Africa do not. Or black women 
of any class, regardless of economic status, have higher risk of breast cancer. These are not genetically given. They're created by the culture of racism and the stress that that imposes. The fact that the more experiences of racism a black woman um, has to endure, the higher risk for asthma. So that the inflammation of the lungs, so then you have to ask the question, as I do in this book, so is the inflammation of her lungs and the narrowing of her airways a matter of individual pathology? Or is it a social malaise? Well, clearly, it's both, but the source of it is outside of herself. So, and one could go on about the health of children in different communities, the, you know, the maternal illness rate, uh, the diagnosis of ADHD, uh, any number of, no matter what you want to look at, it's affected by uh, social and cultural factors. So clearly, just dealing with it on an individual level is necessary, but it's also inadequate. And um, now we're looking at broad questions of policy, social structure, who makes decisions, who decides, and who gets to submit. And, and these are social and political questions. Well, and I'd like to ask you more about those broader social questions. And I should say I'm speaking with the writer and physician Gabor Mate, we're discussing his book, The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture. He's the author of many books, including When the Body Says No and In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. I'm Sasha Lilly. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So in thinking about the relationship of the individual to the social, I wanted to ask you if the picture that you're painting of a kind of deep alienation that we all live under that originates often when we're in the womb and then goes out through childhood and then of course in our work lives, our relationship with each other, with nature around us. When thinking about kind of the water that we swim in, I wanted to ask you if there are political implications for the kind of harms that you've been describing. I mean, obviously, massive political implications in terms of how to understand them. But when people experience that kind of profound alienation starting from childhood, do you think it has any ramifications for the kinds of um, politics that they're drawn to as they get older? Well, yes, they do. Uh, For example, there was one study that showed that um, men who were hit in childhood were far more likely to be anti-abortion and to support aggressive foreign wars and to be in favor of the death penalty unless they had therapy, in which case those views softened up. So that childhood trauma certainly affects your politics in significant ways. Um, I can be more personal about it as well. In the 60s, I was of that generation at university during the Vietnam War. My country, Canada, wasn't directly involved, but uh, we certainly saw the horror of it and the uh, lies that were perpetrated by the system around that war, and that was part of that movement, the anti-war movement. And I used to have a lot of rage and disdain for people that disagreed with me. 
And there were psychologists at that time who said that you jungle generation are just angry with your parents. And I hated that. I said, you know, no, we're talking about the slaughter of millions of people. But you know what? They were right. No. Politically, they were wrong. I was right. Not that I was right, but the anti-war movement was right. That was a horrible war perpetrated in a pack of lies that took the lives of millions of people. But my rage did have to do with unresolved emotional issues. So I see this both on the left and the right sometimes. And since particularly I'm talking to a largely progressive audience, I would say to you that your emotional reactions to politics, even though you can justify them based on moral principles, but the emotions that you generate around them, especially if they're compulsive and persistent, have a lot to do with your childhood unresolved trauma. So this works both ways. Um, the more traumatized you are, the more likely you are to be a right-winger. Uh, the more conspiratorial theories you subscribe to, the ludicrous conspiratorial theories, the more... So here's the thing. If I could, there was a pastor, a minister in Florida, who's got a podcast with hundreds of thousands of followers, and he said that the COVID vaccine was a conspiracy between the Clintons and Bill Gates to introduce microchips into our circulation so they could control us. <laughs> okay? Now, you know, <laughs> I kind of joke that I wouldn't put past the Clintons and Bill Gates to do that, but I don't think they have the technology just yet. <laughs> <laughs> but more to the point is, what if that guy wasn't what somebody would like to dismiss as a nutcase? What if in his experience there was a time when he was helpless and he was controlled by people? that did bad things to him. But he doesn't want to deal with that emotional reality. So he projects all that paranoia onto the co conspiracy theory. That's, what, that's how I understand him. And there's some evidence for that as well. So, and w one final thing is, um, the great um, writer, neurologist Oliver Sacks, who wrote this book called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, um, he describes a scene where he's in a neurological ward of, with a group of aphasiacs. Aphasiacs are people that can't process language because they had a stroke in that part of the brain. And these aphasic patients are watching Ronald Reagan, the president, the great communicator, giving a speech on television, and most of them are laughing, and some of them are outraged. They don't know what he's saying. They're just looking at him. And Oliver Sacks says, is it that they don't understand Reagan, or is it they understand him all too well? And what it is, is they could see through his inauthenticity, because he was completely unauthentic, Reagan was. A style he developed as a child with a severely alcoholic father, where he had to hide his authenticity and pretend to be nice. And this is the great communicator. And these aphasiacs who didn't speak language picked up on the body language. Now, in this culture, so many of us are disconnected from our gut feelings and our innate sense. If we weren't, we wouldn't follow many of the politicians that we follow. We could see through them. And I talk about in the book, in the book about both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump as being significantly traumatized individuals in their childhoods and how that affects their political style. But in this particular culture, 
those traits that are trauma responses are actually read as strengths by some people and admirable. Indeed. Staying with the thread of the political and the social, you write in the book about how studies have shown the adverse health effects on young people of a sense of hopelessness about the climate catastrophe. And I wanted to ask you if more broadly you think that a kind of pessimism that seems to be quite widespread about being able to get beyond the society we live in. Do you think that that sort of deep societal pessimism about a better future underlies some of the maladies that you've been describing? So if you look at the um, literature on the physiology of stress, and if you look at the research on what is it that evokes the physiological stress response in people chronically, it's lack of information, uncertainty, loss of control, and conflict. Now, what better four terms describe how the society is functioning these days? Uncertainty, lack of information, uh, lack of genuine information, uh, uncertainty, uh, conflict, loss of control. So people are being stressed on a massive level, and that has an effect on their physiology, including on the physiology of their brains. Because the brain, too, is a social organ. The brain is shaped by the environment from the neuro onwards and is affected throughout a lifetime, physiologically, by the culture and, and the social conditions under which we live. Now, that sense of hopelessness um, is totally understandable when on the one hand, just to take an obvious one, um, nobody in their right minds, <laughs> unless they're venal and uh, profiteering about it, um, denies the reality of climate change. You know, when the, you know when climate change was first mentioned by a Western scientist? 1800, by Alexander von Humboldt, who witnessed the effects of colonial um, agricultural practices and on the climate in Colombia. So we've been talking about this for 223 years. And certainly the science has existed for decades upon decades upon decades. We've been talking about it. Conferences. Not only do things don't change, they get worse. It's difficult for people to maintain a sense of optimism in the face of the fact that even when something is obvious and we can actually experience its impact, and you certainly in California have experienced its impact already, undeniably, but yet nothing is happening, nothing's changing. So yeah, that hopelessness does reflect the, um, the situation. I don't say it reflects it accurately, but it's certainly a natural outcome of it. But not only does it reflect the situation, it also enforces it. See, if the system had a wish, not that I don't want to personify the system as if it was a conspiracy. There are plenty of conspiracies, but I don't think the system as such is a conspiracy. It just functions to sustain itself. The system, if you don't like something, you could do two things about it. You could either oppose it and get active about it and, 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 and then become an advocate and an activist, which, by the way, we identify in the book as two 
to essential aspects of health on the social level as advocacy and activism. You could do that, or you could be resigned to it. Well, the system would rather have you resigned. So the hopelessness not only reflects the situation, it also reinforces it. Um, I don't share that sense of hopelessness. I used to more, but I suppose the older I get and uh, the more I work out my own stuff, the more I see possibility in the world as well. And, you know, I was talking to Noam Chomsky about this, and, and Noam said, I asked him, you know, he's, Noam Chomsky once said that he was a strategic optimist, but a tactical pessimist, by which he meant, I think, that in the long term he's an optimist, but in the short term things are getting worse. I agree with him. I think we have it in us. I think the possibility for transformation ourselves as individuals, as humanity, our societies, exists within us. That possibility exists. As long as that possibility exists, I don't see that I need to be hopeless about it. It may be realistic to say that it's getting worse and it may get a lot worse yet. That's just how it is. But that's not up, that's not that's not pessimism, that's just realism. The possibility is still there. And if I didn't, I wouldn't do the talking that I do, the healing work I do, or the speaking or writing that I do, nor with a lot of other people. Nor would you and I even be having this conversation, I don't think. So that even when we think it's hopeless, something in us says, no, it isn't. Let's keep learning. Let's keep talking. Let's keep working. One thing that I think has been striking about uh, the ways that the status quo has been justified and the system of capitalism has been framed as permanent and inevitable and no way to transcend it or get beyond it is an evocation of human nature, that human nature is at its root based on a kind of individualistic selfishness, and we'd have to do great harm to each other if we were ever going to live in a more collective way, and hence, you know, the gulag is evoked. You write about the uh, uses that a notion of human nature can be put to. Can you say what you think about human nature and what it does or doesn't constrain in terms of our possibilities? Sure. Um, well, to quote two people I've already mentioned, one is uh, Robert uh, Sapolsky, who said that human nature is not to be constrained by our nature. <laughs> and uh, Noam Chomsky said that, uh, and I quote both of them in, in my chapter on this, is that, um, I say my chapter, by the way, I need to acknowledge my son Daniel, with whom I wrote this book, so our chapter. Um, our chapter on this is there's no defined human nature. That that if Jesus was a human being, and if Buddha was a human being, and Hitler was a human being, and Stalin was a human being, if Martin Luther King is a human being, and Donald Trump is a human being, um, then what is the human being? Then what is human nature? So, what is human beings? What human nature? And, and, and by the way, in this society, it's very common to say, when somebody does something selfish or manipulative or greedy, we say, oh, that's just human nature. But what about when people are kind or giving? Do we say, oh, that's just human nature? Why not? The kindness is very common. <laughs> and all of us, when we're kind and open-hearted, we feel much better in our bodies. So why do we identify selfishness with human nature? 
We evolved as communal creatures for millions of years, hundreds of thousands of years, including if even the existence of our species, Homo sapiens sapien, can be encapsulated in 60 minutes on a clock, then until five minutes ago, we lived in small band hunter-gather groups where the communal need determined individual behavior, individual thinking, and individual feeling. So giving, receiving, supporting, collaborating, that's what we did. We would not have survived as individualistic hostile creatures. We would not have survived. We could not have lived that way. Monkeys couldn't. Wolves couldn't. No mammals could. So what we tend to do is to identify behaviors in a certain society with some kind of global human nature. It doesn't exist. What we know does exist are human needs. And what I can tell you is human children have certain needs of warm attachment relationships where they're accepted for exactly who they are, where their emotions are accepted and welcome, where they don't have to work to make their relationship work with the parents, where there's free play, free, genuine, authentic, spontaneous play out there in nature that helps the brain develop properly, which is essential for brain development. If you meet those conditions, you're gonna get human beings that are compassionate, for the most part, collaborative, and they don't think in terms of individual greed as the way to satisfy their needs. This society, we don't bring up people like that. So you see a prevalence of behaviors that are selfish, and not only are they prevalent, they're even celebrated. But it's a cultural construct. So you can't extrapolate from the way people are in a certain culture to some general idea of human nature. I don't think there's a human nature that dictates how we are. We have human needs. And we have certain conditions that will promote the healthy development of human beings, other conditions that will undermine it. So that's how I understand human nature. I'd like to end by asking you about how you see what could be drawn from the ideas of someone like Marx and the longer tradition of socialism. You grew up in Hungary during the Holocaust and then as Hungary was part of the former Soviet bloc and the Hungarian uprising in 1956, and you later moved to Canada. So, you know, it could be argued that you've experienced a whole number of different social systems. You know, many people, when we were speaking about human nature, would argue in the same vein about individualism being a a hardwired part of who we are, that the Soviet experience showed that it just wasn't possible for people to live together in a way that was socialistic. How do you reflect on your own experience and what do you conclude? Sure. So first of all, let me make a distinction between individualism and individuality. I'm all in favor of individuality. That's what I call authenticity. Individualism is kind of a hostile and standoffish relationship to other people. That's not individuality. That's a response to a certain way of um, child-rearing and a certain ideology. There's a distinction between individuality and individualism, so that's the first point. The second point is, yeah, I grew up in Hungary where the, um, I mean, I was an infant during the Holocaust, but, and that did a lot to shape my view of life and so on, but I grew up 
during the Stalinist dictatorship uh, in Hungary. Until 1956, the revolution, when I was just under 13 when that broke out. And I grew up a good little communist, and I, I used to believe in the system that this is equality, workers' rights, and so on. <laughs> I remember reciting a poem once called, Tremble, You Lords of Wall Street. And I, then I asked my dad, Dad, what is Wall Street? And he said, oh, it's a place in New York. But I didn't know what the hell I was talking about, you know? And when the principal in school mentioned party and leader, I would leap to my feet and clap in unison with my classmates, long live the leader, long live the party. You know, I was hook, line and sinker until, and it was a joke in Hungary, <laughs> in Eastern Europe, that said you could be honest, intelligent, or a member of the Communist Party. In fact, you can be two of those three things, but not three things, that, but not all three at the same time. And because um, if you're honest and intelligent, you could be a member of the party, you know, and so on, you know. So it was a brutal dictatorship, and I didn't see that. And my parents weren't going to tell me, because to say so would be to endanger their own well-being, to say the least. So I came to the West, and, and um, then, then the Americans now, who were the... And the Soviet army, who had saved my life as an infant, had used to be my heroes, now were the enemy, to my 13-year-old thinking. And the Americans were the, who were the counterpoint to the Soviet were the heroes until 67 and the Viet aforementioned Vietnam brutality occurred and then, I th and then I realized that everything the Americans said about the Soviets was true and everything the Soviets said about the Americans was also true and what each said about it themselves was a total lie. And in terms of the Marxism and its relationship to what happened in Eastern Europe in the Soviet bloc, I don't think for a second that had much to do with a real understanding of Marx. Marx never said that you could impose a, a, a socialist system on a large agricultural country by the dictatorship of a small party over the rest of the population. That was ne I, I read Marx, nowhere does he say anything like that. Marx was, a Marx was both a politician and a philosopher and a historian and a student of economics. His description of capitalism, his understanding of history in terms of the struggle of different forces and so on, I think there was so much truth in it. As a politician, as a political leader, he made lots of mistakes himself, and I don't think he saw the future as clearly. But I don't think that you can lay Eastern Europe at his feet. And uh, in terms of the future, what did he not predict that, I mean, he predicted the monopolization. Are we not seeing that right now? That fewer and fewer people control everything? That the 15 top richest people in the world own as much as the bottom half, I think, something like that? Let alone the power that they have? I mean, there's a lot of things about, he predicted the ongoing economic crises. So there's a lot about Marx's understanding of history that I'm totally aligned with which doesn't mean that I'm lined with the many horrible things that were done in the name of Marxism. They were truly horrible, atrocious, anti-human. This is where individualism comes in. We have to hold on to our own point of view and not buy into any ideology, ideology as such. An ideology, by definition, excludes other points of view and it constrains our capacity to see reality. So yes, Marx, and I quote Marx in this book, and he had a lot of you know, he said, he said, uh, to say that um, 
man is a part of nature is that is to say that nature is at one with itself you know like he understood our connection to nature he also said that wisdom begins with self-examination he actually said that so this book is an attempt to mm, conduct that self-examination on both an individual and on a social level so that in a nutshell is what i'll tell you about my understanding of marx and his relationship to how i see things Gabor Mate, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much. My pleasure as well. Thank you. Gabor Mate is a physician and writer, author of many books, including most recently, The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening, and please tune in again next time. (laughs) 